we look back and every 10 years, we had a black swan. And every 10 years, five years after a black swan, we actually doubled the value of the company after the recession or, or black swan because we were always ready for it to happen. In other words, when we do our business plans, we put them aside and say, okay, we know there's something out there we can't even figure out. Okay, so let's put money aside. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance. Scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, today I'm talking to Jack Stack. Jack is in his fifth Black Swan event. In the late 70s, he moved to Springfield, Missouri to turn around or close a a plant for International Harvester. And then in the early 80s, the recession hit and he decided foolishly to try and save the factory. And then some 50 banks later, he found somebody who'd lend him the money and he then had to get on and run his factory. And so what a success it's been. So they started then with maybe a hundred and odd staff they're now close to 2,000 with sales of over $450 million. And we talk about how each one of these events has been a significant catalyst for further growth. I think Jack said that after each recession, the business has doubled in the next five years. So absolutely amazing success. And he puts it all down to open book management, which is a, a way of running your business by making your financial instruments personal, giving people a stake in in your business and getting people to own elements of the income statement and the P&L. So we talk about that. We talk about uh, how that came to be the great game of business. And we talk about how, if you're an organization, you might follow in Jack's footsteps and and run your, your employee bonus programs based on the weaknesses of your financial statements rather than a profit share or or based on revenue goals. Fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Hello, I'm Jack Stack. I'm from Springfield, Missouri in the United States and really looking forward to having a conversation with Dominic. Jack, are you? what are you famous for? I don't think I'm ready to say that yet. I, I, <laughs> I think you're only famous after you die, okay? Okay, okay. We, we'll not do that. All my life I've been trying to do, okay, is, you know, when I'm in the ground, this organization survives 10 years after I'm dead, and I'll know I've been a success. That's simple. That's brilliant. But I, certainly my recollection of, of the story is that, you know, you found yourself in a plant that was going to be closed, and you came up you came up with this mad idea that, it shouldn't close and it should be saved. Yeah, I was in the, in the I just want you to know, Dominic, this is my fifth black swan. Okay, so my first, <laughs> black swan, 
seriously, this is a true. My first black swan was 1983, in the height of that recession, and uh, I was a uh, plant manager of a facility that had 250 people, and we were in the midst of either closing it down or selling it, and we had all these people that we were responsible for, and I had been shipped down here from Chicago, Illinois, to Springfield, Missouri, to either close the factory or turn it around, and we did it. We came down in 1979, and we fell in love with the people. This was an entrepreneurial community. Most people came off of farms. They were the type of people that said, give me the tools to do the job and get the hell out of my way, and I just fell in love with the people. And then 83 crashed, and we were faced with closing the factory. People were walking around asking questions like, should I get married? Should I have a kid? You know, Should I buy a car? Am I going to have a future? And I was the leader and had no answers. And so finally, out of desperation, I went there and asked them if they wanted to buy the company. And I was hopeful that somebody in the company would sit there and go, you don't know anything about running a company. You know how to make a tractor. You know how to make an engine, but you do not know how to run a company. And I just, I was praying that somebody would say no. So then my conscience would be clean if anything <laughs> happened. And after I got done with this glorious speech about trying to buy the company, I then was given the responsibility to go try to figure out how to buy the company because all the employees, they would have followed anybody. They were just looking for, they were so desperate for a solution in 83, they'd have taken anybody. So I went on an odyssey to borrow money and I'd never borrowed, you know, I, when I worked in the Fortune 500 company, they never talked about costs, they never talked about money. They simple things from Frederick Taylor days. And Frederick Taylor days were ruthless days, okay? I mean, they didn't have anything. We never had financial literacy. So now I got to go borrow money and uh, I go to my bank and I take a specification of a tractor. And that was my business plan, okay? Because I spent 14 years building tractors. And ironically, the bank said, uh, well, what is this? And I said, well, I'm a builder. I'm building, I want to save jobs. So I want you to borrow, lend me money. And they began to kind of laugh. And they said, well, you know, we have a different set of specifications. Okay? We have liquidity ratios and receivable turnovers and payables, uh, financing. And, and they were talking about language. I mean, I knew the specifications of an engine backwards and forwards, but I had no idea there was a specification on building a company, right? So then they asked me to write all these plans and I had to put these financials together. And I literally went on a journey to borrow money for two years. Okay, I went to over 50 financial institutions begging for money, constantly getting turned down, you know, turned down. Every time I got turned down, they wanted something different, obviously, in terms of their business plans. And after about a year and a half, two years, I found a bank that was in serious trouble. <laughs> I went to them. It was, a, it was an article in the Wall Street Journal about this bank having improved their margins. And I knew now I knew bankese by this time, right? And I knew to, in order to increase the margins, they need to take high-risk loans. So, And I went to them and I said, look, I hear you're booking bad loans. I got a doozy for you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I got into a period where they, were, they laid off their chairman, they laid off their president, they were shutting down leverage buyouts. And in 1983, I was able to borrow $9 million without only $100,000 worth of equity, all right? And the equity all came from the employees. And so we were like an 89 to 1 <laughs> equity buyout with an 18% interest rate. 
But we had our first chance. We had a chance to save jobs. And we brought our first 119 people back on February 1st, 1983. And the very first thing we did is we took that $100,000 and we got everybody in the room and said, I'm going to teach you what I just learned over these last two years in terms of the specifications that you need in order to, to build an outrageously successful company. I said, all you guys know how to do tractors. You know how to do engines. You can grind a crankshaft. I said, but you know what? They've fooled us all these years. Okay. What we needed to learn was how to build an outrageously successful company. So let's go take the specifications of the income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement. Let's all learn what these investors knew, know, okay, what capital people know. And then we design the organization based on the weaknesses that come out of the financial ratios. If their margins were too thin, we deal with margins. If our receivables are too concentrated, we deal with concentration of margins. Okay, we know how to build engines. Okay, we know how to build tractors. So the first day of business, when we brought the first 119 people, we took a blank income statement and a blank cash flow statement, and we went around the room. We said, Bob, what are you going to sell? And we said, you know, Calvin, what is going to be the cost of goods? And then we broke down the cost of goods. And then we went to Irene, who ran purchasing, and said, purchasing, what are you going to buy? And by the end of like 20 minutes, we put an income statement together. And it was so crazy because at that moment, we realized that everybody owned a line on that income statement. I mean, if I could have gone back to the Venetian monks in nineteen or in the 1400s and invented this thing, I'd have said, leave us a line, leave us a line. Next to sales, there's a person, okay? Next to marketing, there's a, next to engineering, there's a person. And so what we did is we kind of humanized the financial statements where people got, they got it, they understood it. And for 37 years now, we've been teaching open book management. And I guess that's what we're basically known for is that we are so believers in terms of teaching people financial literacy that we have built so many companies from our people who then have gone into other communities and who have taken this thing into their homes to build better lives. And Jack, what's the, from your $100,000 and 9 million of debt, where are you now? Well, we have no debt until this crisis, okay, which we're now considering taking debt on for the first time. But we have a book value of about $152 million in book value. But since 1983, we've been a, a privately held company, employee-owned, and we have distributed in terms of retirements over $100 million. So if you think about the $100,000 investment and what financial literacy turned it into, it was over... $250 million when you combine the retirees, the people have left, have taken their ESOPs and the book value still being at 150, 152. And how many people do you employ now? Uh, 1,800. Wow. And what proportion of the GDP of, in 1983 were you of, of, the, of Springfield? Were you the biggest employer in the town or? No, that was hysterical. In Springfield, Missouri, there were no jobs, even though we had six universities. You got to realize that in 1983, unemployment was was a solid 12 percent. I mean, if you're planning on raising kids in this community at that time, th there was no jobs. I mean, it was a terribly a scary period of time. In fact, when you got laid off, it wasn't a, a soft landing in those days. I mean, it was a hard drop. There was no ability to be able to get unemployment or there was no 
uh, health care programs. There was no, I mean, it, when they closed it down, it was tight. I mean, the company that I worked for went from 115,000 people down to 11,000 people in two years. Okay, so it was, so our, our, our concentration was to build jobs. We want, we just wanted to create jobs. We want, the funny thing about the industrial society is that there were periods of time where people strive to be safe and strive for security and strive for loyalty and strive for working 40 hours. And there was some really basic stuff that built the middle class. And then all of a sudden, now we were changing it. I mean, we were changing and saying that people had to work five jobs, that, that was the responsibility of the employer to, to teach people how to be employed. And, the, and going from this industrial age to this information age, we just didn't like it. Okay. And we said to ourselves, come on, let's, let's go back to our roots. Let's go back to families. Let's go back to communities. Let's Let's use business as a, as a tool in order to be able to build the lives that we want to do. And let's enhance it and build build businesses. And so since 83, by teaching people how to succeed a business, we've spun off 60 businesses. The 1,800 people that we've really, we have here presently, there is probably collectively over 4,000 people that have benefited from this open book management, okay, because we were able to attract Fortune 500 companies that came into Springfield, Missouri, okay, that actually built factories here based on the, the strength of the workforce because we really promoted this whole idea is that people can understand debt. They can understand financials, and it's one of the most powerful tools that we have. And even to this day, so few people understand it. And why, why do you think that is? Why do you think management teams don't want to share financial literacy with their employees one of the, one founder of one of the small business magazine answered the question is that we still have a lot of secrets inside of our businesses that we really don't want people to understand okay two is is that we have a lot of executives that don't even know how to read them because they're too reliant on accountants and lawyers and they really can't even explain it uh to their own people all right and then third is that um we think that people are not going to be understanding. It's too sophisticated. Information is power, okay? And they really don't understand how freeing this is. I mean, they, they don't understand it's the true definition of transparency, okay? It's, most people are raised that, you know, you can't come out of your office unless your tie is perfectly straight and you have to have all the answers, okay? And people are going to ask you questions and you don't have it or you got a crisis, you got to come up with a solution. They just don't understand the wisdom of the crowd. They don't understand the power inside of the people. I mean, they they don't understand the innovation and creativity is better off when everybody can put a put an income statement together and really test their new ideas and innovation. Okay, it's just a you know for us for we open up our books, we open up our businesses, we now write books about it. I mean, we, this is our passion is to try to tell people is that you lose nothing as a result of this and you gain so much. Do you share salary information? Is that, is that open? We don't share salaries because people don't want their salaries exchanged. We do have, like I'm in corporate and so everyone sees the corporate payroll. They don't see the individual payroll. So we're a holding company that's now got 10 or 12 different companies. What you'll see is that we have 18 people in that. You'll see that it's like a $4 million annual budget. So you can divide by 18. You can put in a four, 4 million. You can see that nobody's taking out 
a significant amount of money. And if there's any adjustment to that, it's it's, it's available for everybody to see any kind of deviation that occurs in those accumulative payrolls. And so how how did it go from being a thing that you fixed and jobs that you saved to being this, I don't know, this movement? Actually, when we started the company and we started to do income statements for staff meetings, you know, we had a staff meeting and in a staff meeting, we would lay out the income statement for the week, which would reflect the month, okay? And then anything of material significance, and then we would go give it to our people and we would talk about where the cash flow, you know, we only have $100,000 worth of cash, you know, it's just, it's not that hard at the very beginning to tell everybody where it is, where it's going, okay? And uh, and then once we were able to communicate to everybody that everybody in the company made a difference, okay, which was significant in terms of this whole idea of open book, where they see and feel and touch and they know truly, the income statement brings everybody together as a team, which is really kind of cool. You begin to see the structure that engineering needs sales and sales needs engineering and production needs sales. And I mean, it's just absolutely dynamite when everybody can see themselves, you know, and the contributions they make. It's like, each line in an income statement is their own business plan. You know, you you see things that you that are just absolutely miracles that occur because of the talent that you have in people once they get to the point of getting it. And what we strive for is that we want to teach business. We want to create a business of business people in every level of the organization. I mean, we see janitors and in communities, okay, figuring out how now to dilute chemicals so they last longer, so they enhance cash flow to an organization. I mean, everybody, everybody can make a difference in this world. And so we started out by this this open book, okay. We ran it every week. That was our staff meeting, and then somebody wanted us to understand how we had a comp- what kind of compensation program we had here. And we said, well, what we do is, you know, we teach everybody the business. And then when the business does well, we have a variable compensation program. And it's all skewed to figuring out what financial ratio we have to fix. And they go, what financial ratio? Time? I said, well, debt to equity was kind of like our first one. <laughs> you know, when, we were, when we owed $8.9 million and only had $100,000 worth of equity, it was pretty interesting to teach people that if, in fact, we can go from 89 to 1 to 60 to 1, we dropped inventories by $2 million, paid down that debt, and we saved 18% on interest so we could put a pool together, an incentive program, to then be able to teach people financial ratios by putting a variable compensation program. But more importantly, when we were looking at our financial plans on an annualized basis and we picked our one weakness, we were able then annually to work on the weakness to make us stronger over longer periods of time. So then they thought that was the weirdest compensation program when they invited us to go to Boston. And we went there to try to explain to them that we weren't just paying on profits, we were paying on elements of the income statement, balance sheets and cash flows. And then once we were able to fix long-term weaknesses, they thought that was smart. They wrote an article about us in the early, in the late eighties, that got to be a front cover of a small business magazine. We got invited them to speak at a conference and we spoke at a conference and they gave us a very small room and a lot of people showed up and there was like, well, they were sitting in the hall an editor from Doubleday walked by and she was really stooped because she was always looking for new books and new ideas. So she'd go to association. She said, well, this is intriguing. She came up to us and said, how would you like to write a book? And I said, I can't write a sentence, lady. 
And then she said, well, how about if we give you a $75,000 advance? And we said, well, how fast do you want this book? <laughs> we spent two years trying to write a book to meet her satisfaction. And her satisfaction was that nobody wrote a book where it was a conversation piece. Okay. Nobody wrote a book on, you know, the, this financial aspect about business where it was like you were sitting across a desk. So for two years, we would write text and she'd throw it back to us and she'd get mad at us. And finally, we just took a tape recorder, went out on my bass boat fishing. And for 30 hours, we just talked. And we said, we said, gosh, darn it. If you want it to be as if we were talking to each other, then we, we did 30 hours worth of tapes. And then we took the tapes exactly the way we talked and we put it in the book. And we wrote this book called The Great Game of Business. And it went out in the marketplace and it was all about teaching, you know, the financials, opening the, the books to people and people read it. And, you know, it became a very, very, it sold really well, not because it was rocket science, because it was in the heart of so many people that thought this was the right thing to do. Okay. The book took off because they always said, you know, I thought this would be a good idea if we'd share this information, but no one ever, no one ever was dumb enough to go actually put it in print and say that it worked. And so the book sold really well. It's been, it's sold for like 30 years, 20, I don't know how many years now. I mean, it's been on, it's been a very, very big seller only because it's what's in the heart of people. It's a good news story, isn't it? It's like, there's a, you're the hero saving, saving the jobs of, good, honest, hardworking folk. And did they, did that hundred thousand, did I, am I right in remembering it came from their 401k contributions? Was it that you basically had the pension of your employees in, in your hands? No, it really didn't. I, <laughs> this is, remember we were economically literate at the time. Okay. Okay. We were good manufacturing people. We knew nothing about business. So after about 50 attempts to get a loan, all right. And we found out this one bank, uh, and they were willing to talk to us. I went back with a piece of paper and sent it around to the people and said, okay, we need $9 million. How many of you guys want to invest in this thing? We sent a yellow piece of paper around to like 200 people and we get, were able to raise $66,000. So I went out to the people and I said, listen, this is, you know, go rob your piggy banks, take the gold crowns out of your kids' teeth. You know, I mean, this is our ability to save the company, buy our jobs. And then I sent it on, on Monday, and some guy's wife, she took 2000 out. I got 64000 and she thought it was a horrible deal. So then we went to the banks, and the bank said, well, we want to know your top leadership team, and we want to know uh, everything they got. We want their balance sheets, and we want to know you're committed. And so I went to my 13 supervisors, got their balance sheets, went to the bank, they said, okay, you got to come up with $100,000. So then we went back. I remember going to my father-in-law who took a second mortgage on my house. Okay. I mean, I had three kids at the time. What was he going to do? Throw me out of my own house? Okay. But he, he was a real strong German, you know, and he, he had every, the principal payments laid out over 10 years. And uh, so I borrowed from my father-in-law and I borrowed from my dad because we worked for big companies all night. We didn't have any money. All right. So we just scraped it. We didn't have 401ks at that time. And when you do your, your bonus program, you don't pay out equally across each quarter, do you? In the, in the sort of the system that you now, that you now teach. 
and teaching is the right word because what we decided to do when we everyone does um long range plans and they do their financial plans you know like when you go for a loan the lending officer said i want to see the year on a monthly basis and i want to see it five years out you know the drill right we always follow that drill and so we do a financial plan every year we then take the financial ratios we measured against um, the industries that we're in and then where we're weak in a financial ratio that becomes the bonus program okay so let's say in the second year of business we went from debt to equity to the janitor actually told me that all our receivables were in the truck industry and the truck industry has a recession every six years so no matter what you're doing you're going to lay us off because all our eggs are on baskets. 76% of our receivables in the truck business. So guess what our second year bonus or bonus program was? And that was diversification. Okay. So we would, we sat there and said, well, what goes up in a recession? And we found out that car parts went up in a recession. So we got into automobile engines to diversify our business and Every time we would use one of these financial ratios, we figure out how much money could we self-fund to put into the bonus program, okay, which would be our variable bonus program. But we also wanted people to have a little bit of taste of it the, the minute the year started. In other words, we didn't want to have a variable compensation program that you paid out in the last year where then everybody works in the fourth quarter to be able to get it. So we spread it out saying you could get 10% of it in the first quarter, an additional 20 in the second, an additional 30, and then 40, okay? And we said, if you don't make it, because if we set if we set a hard goal, they don't necessarily make it in the first quarter, it's still accumulative, all right? So the idea of spreading the bonus program out was to use all 365 days, you know, not just the fourth quarter in terms of being able to get the bonus program. And it's worked really well for us. Did you stumble across that? Because it, it, in a way, it feels really counterintuitive. It makes sense when you explain it, but I haven't seen anybody else, you know, use that as a mechanism for for paying an annual bonus like that. So did you, what was the genesis of the sort of 10, 20, 30, 40? I think it was in my earlier 14 years when I was in the company where I had seen these, these uh, Fortune 500 companies run these kind of bonus programs. And I saw all the effort that was wasted in the first three quarters. And then everybody makes a mad dash to do all these crazy stuff. And it was just kind of logical that sat there and said, well, why don't we just spread this thing out? And I, I wasn't betting the farm on saying that our bonus program, let's say the max was in the variable is about 15% of payroll. So in the 15% of payroll, if I was only going to, uh, in the first 90 days, my risk was only like 1.5%. Is it the same program throughout? It's the same program for every single employee, executive team down to the janitor. Well, uh, we have a, a 5% difference between what they call salaried and salaried exempt and non exempt and hourly. And the reason we have the 5% gap is because we want people to get promoted. All right. We want people to move up to the higher position. So we, let's say we have a 15 for hourly and we have a 20% for salaried and execs. That allows people to see what the future could look like and to try. Right. They, they, they would move their salary up, taking a new position, but they'd also move their bonus package up as well. And what what other, because you said it right at the beginning, this was your fifth Black Swan event. So 83? 87 when the market crashed. And then we had 9-11. And then we had um, 09 was really a, another Black Swan. And then we had this one. 
And how, what's, what's the impact of this on, on trading? In 09, it was basically financial. I mean, basically, it was like, it, I mean, everybody got cut off uh, on the money supply. This one, it's about health and money, okay, which every black swan I've been through is worse than the previous black swan. But through these black swans, we really understand that you have to, in all your planning processes, you have to be prepared that there's always going to be a black swan. I know it sounds crazy, but when our black swan hit in 09, we were very blessed to have a very strong balance sheet. We look back and every 10 years, we had a black swan. And every 10 years, five years after a black swan, we actually doubled the value of the company after the recession or, or black swan because we were always ready for it to happen. In other words, when we do our business plans, we put them aside and say, okay, we know there's something out there we can't even figure out. Okay, so let's put money aside, you know, for the, the, the most catastrophic event you can imagine. So in 09, we actually put together a long-term plan to raise $100 million in cash for the next Black Swan. So from 09 to 019, we estimated that there was gonna be some kind of a recession, slowdown, economic adjustment. And so what we were gonna do is to have a war chest to make moves when this catastrophic event occurred. And sure as hell, now it occurred, we have a $100 million war chest. This is going to allow us to be able to keep running, meet payrolls, position ourselves uh, for at least, as bad as this is right now, we can run 15 months even with a very low demand. And it's that opportunity. It gives you opportunity for winning new contracts, mergers. Do, do you do mergers and acquisitions or is it just? Yeah. And let me give you an example of 09. I mean, when they, we had 40 million in the bank at 09, okay, because we had done a joint venture with a large OEM and they, they bought us out in 08. We have money in the bank. We have a $9 million line of credit with the bank and the bank calls us up in January and says, we're calling your 9 million. We say, you're calling her $9 million. We got $40 million in your bank and money market accounts. How can you be so stupid? They said, well, we're Canadian-owned, and we've been told to pull every manufacturing loan out regardless of how secure it is. I went to them, and I said, well, how about if I gave you $9 million of the cash as a <laughs> deposit to be able to offset the $9 million loan? They got back to me, and they go, all right, here's the deal. We'll give you, you're not going to believe it. They said, we'll give you 80% advance on your cash. <laughs> and we're going to move from LIBOR, we're going to move from Prime to LIBOR, and it'll be one and a half. I said, well, what are you going to give me on my 40 million? So substantially less than what they're going to lend me. So we then uh, paid them off. And uh, we then proceeded to buy one company that was about $16 million for the sales. And we actually, was able to purchase that for about $100,000. We bought a 260,000 square foot building for $10 a square foot. I use those as two examples of what's available in a term return. They, they are unbelievable deals. The business that we bought in 09, okay, had 60 of the most incredible mechanics you ever saw in your life. Today, they've got 160 people, okay? We were able to build that thing into a powerhouse the building that we have now that was 250,000 square feet that was at $10 a square foot can be refinanced at $50 a square foot, okay? <laughs> because, you know, that's the appraised value in an upturn, you know? So we make these kind of deals. 
we really just organically grow during the a normal economic period. But I don't think anybody can understand just how cheap things are in a downturn. Yep. I was writing a, a blog last week and I just thought about, you know, the two businesses that or three businesses I've been involved in the UK and, and we we grew in recession from nothing to 30 million both times in five years. And it does, uh, Warren Buffett's quote about, you know, we'll see who's naked when now that the tide's gone out. I think there's just opportunity. Things are great. People will be available. Office space will be very cheap. You know, one of my clients is looking at global expansion. Yeah. We've been for 10 years building for this catastrophic event only because they've been through it four times before. And we know what happens if you're in a position to sustain and survive, that you can figure out what the new normal is, and then you make your bow moves. I mean, it's those three things that that occur. I mean, you stabilize the ship, okay, and then you replace the engines, and you get ready to take off. And what should uh, where should people start? I mean, obviously, they should go and get copies of Great Game of Business and a stake in the outcome. But if, if people are thinking about something they should Easter weekend or... What should they, where should they start with their open book journey? This is a different period of time because, you know, you may be a little bit behind the curve right at the moment. I mean, I do think that there are three things that you really got to do. You really got to get your foot on the ground. You got to see how strong and, you know, where you stand at this particular uh, point of time. How much cash do you have on hand? What's your capacity relative to debt? Okay, what do you think the demand's going to be? But I wouldn't do that in a vacuum, okay? I would be thinking about how do I get in my organization? How do I take them to a gymnasium? How do I pour out the cash that I have on the floor? And then how do I show them that everyone's going to go in there with a wheelbarrow and sales is going to put the money in and then someone's going to take the money out. At the end of the period of time, there's nothing left, okay? Then you start asking people to be able to help you design your way out of the problem, all right? And being honest with them and being open with them, okay, and being transparent is where I always believe that innovation came more out of scarcity. And, and I think your $30 million companies is a perfect example of this. I mean, we are more creative. We are more innovative. We are more entrepreneurial than when we don't have anything, okay? And that's where the spurt comes. And that's where the growth comes, all right? So you really got to be able to tell people just how much cash do I have. Be honest. You know, when someone once said, well, if I tell them where I stand right now, they'll leave. And I said to him, I said, well, does that mean you only tell them good news? And he goes, yeah, pretty much. And I said, well, do they believe? He goes, no, not really. You know? And I go, look, people have answers. They're the wrong answers. Okay. What you've got to do is you've got to be able to develop a foundation where everybody understands where the footings are at to be able to build the structure that you want going forward. Okay. As soon as you've got those things under control, Save a little bit, put a little risk capital aside, okay? That's something that, well, first of all, nobody does a lot of planning, okay? You know, I remember being at this one National Center for Employee Ownership where we were talking about making plans, and the person goes, oh, I, I don't want to go to that one. I don't do any plans, you know? They just went to the next meeting. They didn't want to. I mean, most people don't do a plan. Do a plan. Lay out a plan. You'll only get there when you lay out a plan. And then you know what? Ask your people to do the plan, all right? Ask your people to put the business together, okay? Teach them how it comes together. Teach them how, you know, their their contributions, okay, are so significant. 
eliminate the things on a short term in terms of what your wants are, get down to your needs, put risk capital aside, and then start investing risk capital, all right? Make some bold moves that you may want. I mean, once you understand, I mean, we've got, you know, we got suppliers right now that are asking us to buy inventories so they can raise cash. They're willing to give us 30 cents on a dollar in terms of inventory so they can they can raise cash. I mean, we've got supply chains, okay, that are asking to, instead of paying a receivable, could you take equity in my company for a while, all right? I mean, it's crazy, okay, what's going to be coming at you the longer this thing goes, all right? So you've got to be building an inventory of opportunities, and that means you've got to go talk to your people and saying, hey, what do you see? Who's in trouble? Who needs help? What synergisms do I have? I mean, there's a whole mess of conversations occur once you do the three things. You sit there and you figure out a survival mode. You then figure out a new normal mode. And then you figure out a bold move mode and you act on those three things. Jack, that's magic. What, why did you call it the great game of business? Because my people wouldn't want, they didn't want to understand when it comes to even telling <laughs> I was a kid at a candy store and I thought, man, this is really cool. You know, I mean, this, this is awesome. And I thought, you know, why are we asking people to build an engine when I should be asking them to build a company? And if you come out of manufacturing, you're taught you increase productivity by taking constraints out of the process. So why would I have two statistics that I wanted? I wanted a good product and I wanted a good company. I said, what if I asked them to make a good company? Wouldn't they make a better product? Wouldn't they make a better service? You know, And so I thought by appealing to a higher level of intelligence, you know, we would get higher levels of productivity and they blew the roof off of it. Okay. Jack, that's magic. What if there's something you know now that you wish you'd known at some other point? What would what might that be? I wish I could have done better at getting this thing more understood and more acceptable in terms of the marketplace because I think it would have made a bigger difference in the lives. I mean, I, I think we've we've really, really struggled with this whole idea of transparency, open books, and you know, telling people that it is a, it is a magic pill. For me, it's really kind of sad. It's worked so well for us, and it's worked for so many other companies, okay, that have instituted it, and and actually free it frees people up, okay. Everything that we have done here, by example, um, it's still just only fractionally out there. Okay, it's sad, and it, it's amazing because I at Rackspace we used to share the all of our financial information with with all of the employees, and then I left Rackspace and I've done it at every business I've been at. I think Vern Harnish had shared your story with Graham Weston, and he brought it back into Rackspace. And I find it absolutely fascinating when you know you share the financial statements with employees. And, you know, then they can get involved. They can ask questions that aren't stupid. And as you say, you know, you said, I think earlier you said your janitor said, well, look, you're going to have to lay us off because we're not in the right, you know, we don't, we don't have enough diversity. You know, you wouldn't have been listening to the janitor's observation on your, on your diversity, or at least a business wouldn't normally look for business advice from their janitors unless you'd implemented a system like this, which gave everybody the opportunity to have an input. You don't know who's in your organization. You don't know how smart they really are, okay, until you open it up. And when that janitor told me that, you know what I did? I ran back to my office crying, screaming, calling my staff together. And I brought them together and I shaking. I said, do you know that 76% of our receivables in the truck market and everything we're doing here, we're crashing unless we do something about it? Yes. I mean, people are smart, 
All right, you got to give them the arena to be able to play in. You cannot box people in anymore. All right, it helps at home too. I can't tell you the number of households that truly understand that debt is a killer. Debt's a crusher. Okay, that that is about the worst that you could possibly believe by being a living human being. All right. And it's not like the United States understands debt, for God's sake, okay? I mean, we need something to help these guys. So along the way, what what books have you read that have had an impact on you that you think other people should pick up? I was a Bill and Ryan fan. You know, I was a Atlas Shrug fan. I love uh, The Fountainhead. I, You know, there's a lot of controversy centered around this, but, I mean, how it really affected me was, you know, it's so terrible to point fingers at somebody else. I mean, it's what that book and the, what she did to me was say, look, you, we all can make a difference and it all starts with us. Okay. It doesn't start by pointing the finger at somebody else or, you know, or whining or complaining. Okay. I mean, when, it, oh, there's all these hero stories. Okay. And then all these, these different opinions about lawmakers and legislation and entrepreneurs and, builders and i mean it's a great but to me it was all about you know i got nobody to blame but myself and i got nobody to and i truly believe that you can do so much okay you can do so much okay but don't let excuses get into your way okay just you know there's always one more thing you can do one more thing you can ask one more piece you can expedite okay one more distance that you can travel okay and that's what those books and what she did to me, you know, in terms of um, putting me on this journey that there was, like Curly would say, you know, there's always one more thing, you know. And are there any, are there any business books that have, uh, have wormed their way into your heart? Yeah, I think every, I think at, at different times, there was always great books. I think that Tom Peters wrote a, wrote a great book in the 1980s, you know, when, uh, we were getting creamed by the by the media in terms of uh, being the rust belt and if we didn't do something about productivity in the united states our kids would live worse than any child in the history of the united states and man we just feel like shit you know because the, the economy was falling and manufacturing was at blame and uh, he wrote pursuit of excellence and it, i mean you talk about timing i mean it was about hey 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 we're not that bad you know i mean it was like one of these uplifting spiritual ground floor books, you know, I, and that followed a whole cast of characters. Vern wrote a lot of good stories, okay, that we use in terms of, you know, books hit you at the right times and, and at the right places, okay? And uh, so, I mean, every, I think every one of these downturns, every one of these period, periods, anybody wrote something in terms of just kindly reminding ourselves about the bright side, the the broad optimism that one needs to have in even in the worst of times. Okay. That, you know, that, you know, even though we're in the situation we're in today, do everything you possibly can, but the best thing you could do is take your right foot forward and start projecting the people. There is a brighter side. Okay. And then to use your energies and strengths, get able to lift as many people to keep moving in the direction that you really want to pursue. You know, I mean, all those pursuits were very good. Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. And thanks for everything you do, Dominic. It's really good to talk to you.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up high performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.